We will be in Psalm 95 together today. Psalm 95. I've classified this in my arbitrary way of as a thanksgiving psalm, but in reality it's a psalm of praise and it's really it's a messianic psalm as well. We we aim to do this every time we open the word of God together. But we want to let the Bible speak for itself. Right? We want to let God speak for himself through his word, which he does week in and week out faithfully. And we believe that the Bible does a really good job of interpreting itself. And so if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, specifically chapters 3 and 4 today, you're going to, this light bulb is going to turn on when we start reading Psalm 95. Because Hebrews 3 and 4 quotes Psalm 95, not in its entirety, but a big part of it. And it kind of helps us understand Psalm 95 in a really wonderful way. So you can kind of put a finger in each place, Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3. Uh, It's Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is going to preach this sermon today way better than I could. And that's a good thing. But let's read Psalm 95 And I'll give some kind of big ideas from Psalm 95, and then we'll look at Hebrews 3 and 4. And I promise you'll still have time for lunch and fireworks. We won't be here too long. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great, and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as, is Marib- as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Would you pray with me again? Father, take your word and plant it down deep in us as we just sang. God, I I could speak magnificently in all kinds of wonderful ways, and I can't not do that. You, you, through your spirit, is the only one who can plant your truth in us. And so, Lord, we, we pray and we plead with you to do that in your people today. Lord, for your glory, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So there's really just a few big picture items from Psalm 95 that I want to kind of bring out first before we look at Hebrews 3 and 4. But Hebrews 3 and 4 is one of the most complete quotations in the New Testament of any Old Testament book. And you'll see almost half of the psalm is quoted in those texts from Hebrews. So Hebrews is who attributes Psalm 95 to David, so it doesn't specifically say it, probably in your Bibles on Psalm 95, 
but in Hebrews 3 and 4, it credits this psalm to David. So he's, he's our author here. And there's three big things, and here they are. We'll go through them briefly. The first thing is who God is. And it's not a question mark at the end of that. This psalm tells us who God is. That's the first big thing. The second big thing is that who God is inspires or motivates a reaction, a response from his creation. And then the third big thing is that who God is leads to something very specific that we'll see. So, who God is, that's the first big thing. Just look at these 11 verses and look at how God is described. I'm going to run through them quickly. I'll give you the verse so you can see with me. Verses 1 and 2, David says, He is the rock of my salvation. Verse 3, he is the greatest king. Verses 4 through 6 say he is the sovereign maker of all. Everything was made by God, the earth, the sea, everything. Verse 7, he is the shepherd of his people. Verses 8 through 11, he is the judge of all. So let's recap in these 11 verses who God is. God is the rock. He's the king. He is the maker. He is the shepherd. And he is judge. And because of all of that, this revelation of who God is, mankind, you and I, are called to respond in some way. That's the second big thing. Who God is inspires or motivates a reaction. So you can also follow along and look with me through here and just kind of see how are people supposed to respond to who God is? Well, they're supposed to sing. Right at the beginning of Psalm 95, come, let us together, us, let us sing to the Lord. So singing is certainly a proper response to seeing who God is. Make a joyful noise together. I don't know that those two things are different. Some people say, well, I don't really sing. I just make a joyful noise because I can't sing very well. I don't know that God differentiates if you can sing on perfect pitch or not, I think he looks at your heart, right? And the motivation of your song. Praise God for people who can lead us well, um, like our worship team does every week. Um, but we're just making a joyful noise together. That's what God commands of us. That's our response. Second big thing, and this includes physical posture, is that we're supposed to come into his presence and worship. And that includes singing that includes giving thanks, but look at what it says in, in verse 6. We're going to bow down before the Lord. When we see Him for who He really is, sometimes we even kneel. So our expressions in worship, our worship to God, affects our physical bodies and our posture at times, whether that's raising your hands or sitting down or kneeling or, or whatever the case might be. We're called to a response. A view of God for who he is does that, especially for his people. And the, the third big thing is that all of that is aiming at something specific, which is really what Hebrews 3 and 4 gets to, and it's the little word of rest. The whole second half of this psalm talks about the Israelites and the idea of God's rest. So the third big thing is who God is causes a response from his people and leads to ultimate rest. 
Now, maybe you've noticed as we read through this text that in verse 7, there's like kind of a, a change of tone, a change of subject here. We've gone from like this incredible view of who God is, we're the sheep of his pasture, he has made the heavens and the earth. We should sing for joy. And then all of a sudden it breaks and it says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There's kind of a shift that happens here. Um, it, I think it illustrates two things. A view of God and then a right response to it and a wrong response to it. That's kind of the break here. Do not harden your hearts. Like your fathers, it says. So, what's that referring to? Many of you know, let me recap for all of us, while wandering in the wilderness after leaving Egypt, the Israelites came to a place called Massa, and they were, after traveling in the desert for many days, understandably, they were thirsty. (laughs) They needed something to drink. They didn't have anything. They had done what God had told them to do. They had gone the way that he had showed them in the desert, and yet here they were, without anything to drink. And as the Israelites were prone to do, as you and I are prone to do, we begin, they began to grumble and complain. And might I even add wine in there. So when Moses didn't immediately provide them something to drink, uh, you know, for thousands and thousands of people, something to drink immediately, Uh, They started complaining and arguing and even like Moses was afraid he was going to be stoned by the people. It was that bad. Um, The reality is, though, and I think this is if you want to say God took issue, this is where God took issue. They weren't just complaining against Moses. They were complaining against God. So let's just back up the history train for a second. And if you want to turn to Exodus, you can. But let me recap chapter by chapter from chapter 12 leading up to chapter 17 of Exodus. Because 17 is where they come to this place called Massa that David is referring to. Um, but back in chapter 12 of Exodus, they the Passover, they were delivered from Egypt, uh, saw the ten plagues, how it didn't affect them, but it did affect the, Israel, the Egyptians. They saw all that. They were said, hey, you need to get out of here. Pharaoh said, leave Egypt. We're not going to keep you as slaves anymore. Leave. And, and the people gave them gifts, gold and stuff as they left. They were blessed as they left. That happened in chapter 12. After 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt, they were set free. Then chapter 13, not long thereafter, it says that God led them. He didn't just send them out of Egypt and just, okay, have fun. Um, he led them during the day by a pillar of Smoke, cloud for direction and maybe shielding from the harsh sun. And at night, this pillar was a fire for warmth and guidance as well. Anybody seen a pillar of fire leading a group of people around? I haven't. The miraculous thing that the Israelites saw, verse or chapter 14 of Exodus, is when they came to the Red Sea. And you guys are probably familiar with that story. Moses lifts his staff over the sea and it parts and they walk through on dry land as soon as they get through the waves come crashing over and destroy the army that was pursuing them in miraculous fashion. In Exodus 15, after walking for a few days, 
They come to this place where there's bitter water. There's water to drink, but they can't drink it. It's bad. So what happens? Moses takes a log and chucks it into the water and it turns it into safe drinking water. Let that sink in for a second. Okay? Bitter water, a log goes into the water per God's commands. It's now sweet to drink. The Israelites saw this. Next chapter, chapter 16, after the water incident, they're hungry. What does God do? Bread from heaven every day for 40 years. Bread from heaven. And the way it's described, I think this was interesting, they described it as like wafers made with honey. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? Now, don't try to keep it overnight because then it turns into bad stuff. But wafers made of honey, with honey. That brings us to Exodus 17. So now we all remember what God had just brought them through in just a matter of days time. And Exodus 17, the Israelites come to Massa and they frustrate Moses and they grieve God by their behavior. They just witnessed such provision, such rescue, and it didn't matter. They doubted, they grumbled, they rebelled. They were mad at Moses for bringing them out of slavery in Egypt just for them and their kids and their animals to die in the desert from thirst is what they said. And God was frustrated, as was Moses. But maybe what's worse in all of that is that they assumed, because they didn't have their needs immediately provided for them in this situation, they just assumed that maybe God wasn't as powerful as they thought. Maybe he really couldn't provide like they hoped that he could in the desert. Even though they had seen some of the most incredible things imaginable, they, as according to Psalm 95, they went astray in their heart. Their visible circumstances caused them to abandon faith in an invisible God. They couldn't see him. And so when they couldn't see him, and their provision dried up for a moment, they lost faith. And if I had to guess, and if you're anything like me, you can relate to that, right? Short-term memory problems, if you will. It's so easy for our immediate and visible troubles to cause us to forget the faithfulness of an unseen God and the provision that He's provided day in and day out. Now, I know that there are some of you who are praying and who are waiting for God to do something incredible in a particular situation in your family or in a relationship. You've been waiting for a while, and I would encourage you, don't let the unseen God, don't let the fact that you can't see His providence cause you to go astray in your heart and to lose faith. God has led and provided And he will continue to do those things because his nature is faithful. Because he will not leave us. But like the Israelites, the solution and the timing of it may not always come or happen in the the ways that we prefer. The question we need to ask ourselves then is not an easy one, but I think it's a necessary one. It's this. Who is God? Is it you? Or is it him? Is it me or is it him? Because guess what? There can't be two. You both can't be God. 
He has to be God and we have to let him be God because we both can't be. So in Psalm 95, we kind of see two sides of the same coin, I think. We see the call to respond by who God is and now we're given examples of how proper response and improper response should be. So in the first half of this psalm, we see the joy of serving and loving and following the living God. It spurs great praise and adoration and worship from his people, from those who know him. But in the second half, we see the reality of what happens when a heart goes astray. We see that there are people who don't know him. They don't know or care for his ways and therefore they do not enter his rest. So in the first half of Psalm 95, we see the beauty of what God does in the heart of faith. And in the second half, we see the reality of his wrath towards those who disobey. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3 because that helps us understand why I just said the second half we see the reality of his wrath towards those who disobey. This is where we see that. Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7 of chapter 3, and we're going to kind of continue on eventually through 4. But let's start in chapter 7. Really, the whole chapter is referring back to the situation in Psalm 95 that it refers really from Exodus 17. But start in verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So let's pause there. You can see that's a direct quotation from 95. And just notice in in verse 7, who really says that? It really wasn't David. It was the Spirit of God inspiring Psalm 95. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Now, like Psalm 95, there's a warning. Here's a warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter, enter his rest because of unbelief. Isn't it cool how Hebrews is helping us understand the Psalms and how God's word is interpreting itself? This is great. Let me call your attention to two things in this text so far in Hebrews 3. 
verses 18 and 19, they make it really clear that there are people who will not enter God's rest because of disobedience, because of unbelief. There are people in the world today who will not enter his rest. We see this. We, I think we know this to be true. Um, but we can also look at history and see this to be true. And if you go all the way back to Hebrew history in uh, Exodus 17, there were people who came out of Egypt that did not see the promised land, the physical land of rest of Canaan. Verse 12 through 14 of Hebrews 3 give the instructions for entering God's rest. They tell us how. Unity with Christ coupled with perseverance. That's how you enter God's rest. Being united with Jesus and persevering to the end, which is really a work that God does in his people anyway. And it says that word of warning in verse 12, we need to take it. It says, take care. Exhort one another every day. You guys understand what exhort means, right? It means warn, caution. And we do it out of love. And he says, if, if you call the day that you're living in today, which my last count, we still called today, today. We don't have a different name for it. So the day is called today. He says, if that's the case, for every day that's called today, here's what you need to do. Continue to believe. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hold firm to the confidence you have by being united with Christ. That's how we enter the rest of God. Now let's look at chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, so it's still available today, praise the Lord. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua, he was the one who led the people into God's rest in Canaan, the promised land there. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, there, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is a promise of entering God's rest that still stands today. I want to say it again so that we hear it. Because chances are there are some here or that are listening to this that have not entered God's rest, that will not enter God's rest. And there is still the hope of that standing today. Still extended. By God's grace, rest can still be obtained But as we'll see in just a moment, it's not by your own doing. Look at verse 1 again of Hebrews 4. It says that we should be afraid of missing God's rest. There's a fear. There's a right fear here. But what is it saying in verse 2? We should be afraid of missing God's rest because a person can hear the right message for years and still miss it. 40 years to be exact in the case of the Israelites. They did not enter his rest. You can hear it for years on end and still miss it. Verse 3 of Hebrews 4, I think really should kind of blow our minds when we read it. This is pretty incredible. It says that his works were finished when? From the foundation of the world. From before created things were created, his, God's work was done. Now what in the world is this referring to? I don't know that it's referring to the physical creation because then after six days God did work and then on the seventh he did rest. I think what it's getting at is God's purpose and plan and salvation. So in your notes it's said this way, God's purpose and plan for salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, was completed before the foundation of the world. In God's sovereign mind, it was done. There's no more work in that sense to happen. And in that same sense, God gives rest to His beloved. But He says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And since today is still called today, the question that we need to ask is this. Is God still speaking? Do we still hear his voice? Probably not audibly, but you better believe he's still speaking. His word, as we'll see, is alive. It's active. It's sharp. It cuts through exactly what we need and what we need to erase and get rid of. According to Psalm 19 that we studied weeks ago, you better believe that God still speaks, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. God still speaks. The rest that's spoken of here is the same kind of rest, the author of Hebrews says, as what God did on the seventh day. He rested. So my question for you is kind of the same question that Jason asked the kids How do you rest? Is the rest that we engage in today the same kind of rest that God did on the seventh day? And my suspicions are that it's probably not. 
it's probably quite a bit different. And I think we could probably prove that if you just think back to your last vacation, right? When you're like supposed to be resting. I've talked with several of you who've gotten back from vacation recently and you've said, I, I need time off so that I can recover from my vacation, right? Because it, it's, it's restful in a sense. We get out of the, the regular um, flow of life and we get to sort of rest in that regard. But we, we've still got things to do. You know, you have to find somebody to care for your animals while you're gone. Maybe check in with them to make sure your things are still alive while you're gone on vacation. Um, you have to find uh, a sub to fill in for you at work or field calls while you're on vacation of things that aren't going right in the office or questions that people have or whatever it might be. You know, you, you probably dealt with messed up hotel bookings. Anybody have to deal with that sometimes? Um, vehicle breakdowns. Plane tickets that don't work right. Sometimes our vacations, what we would consider rest, is not all that restful. Because then you get to where you're going and then you get sunburned the first day. Boy, it's really hard to rest after that too, isn't it? Still worth it. Don't get me wrong. Vacations are still worth it despite all those things. But I don't think we should kid ourselves in thinking that that's the kind of rest that God is talking about here. The rest referred to here is, is so much different and so much better than what we think of rest. It will actually look like and actually be the rest of the Lord. There is a rest that remains for God's people to enter even beyond the fulfillment that people saw under Joshua. I think in the King James Version that's translated Jesus in this text. Those are very similar names. Joshua is a type of Christ anyway. Um, but this is referring to the physical entering of God's rest in Canaan through Joshua. And the author of Hebrews says if he was talking about Joshua as entering God's rest, then why did he talk about it again later in Psalm 95 through David, through the Spirit? So it's something more. There still remains to be seen a Sabbath rest for God's people, ultimately. Verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 4, they tell us what this rest is. And this is key. If, if you've blocked me out and stopped listening already, listen again for just, just another minute or so. This is the biggest part. Verse 9 and 10 of Hebrews 4. What is the rest that's being referred to? In Hebrews 3 and 4, in Psalm 95, what kind of rest are we talking about? It is a cessation from work. Cessation means stopping. You cease from doing that. It is a stopping of working under the assumption that the work is what saves you. It is saying enough to the notion that our work is what really pleases God and makes us right before Him. Now, I've, I've talked about work in a sermon recently, and so I just, I just want to be really clear. Um, the work that's being referenced here is, is a spiritual sense, not a physical like, day-to-day, you go into the office kind of work. I've said this before, too, that God gives us work. It's actually a blessing to work with our hands and to to be active and to do this. Remember, God gave Adam and Eve things to do in the garden before sin ever entered the picture. So work itself isn't bad. But in a spiritual sense, if you're working to earn God's favor or acceptance, your work will never cease. You can never work enough to earn that. And the beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't expect that's how he's going to give it to you. 
Does God love me and give me salvation and rest because of my own good deeds? Because of my own work? Or does God love me and offer salvation and rest because of his own sovereign choice that joins him and me together by receiving it in faith? If you're resting in God and you have entered into his rest in that way, then you have to rest from your own work. You have to have rested and ceased your own work. In other words, I'll say it this way, you can't rest in the Lord without resting from your own work. You can't do it. You can't walk the fence of trying to earn God's favor, but also believing in faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It's one or the other, and one doesn't work at all. I think, uh, really, as I was studying this week and reading through these texts, uh, the 11th verse of Hebrews 4 almost made me laugh out loud. And it's not visibly a funny thing, except that in the previous few verses, the author of Hebrews is laboring to tell us, you can't work to get this. And then in verse 11, what does he say? Well, let us strive. And we can start to think, well, hang on a second. Which is it? Are we working or are we just, are we not working? Because it seems a little confusing at this point. Well, there are, these are different words in, in the translations. The word work in verse 4 and 10 of Hebrews 4 is a different word than the word strive in verse 11. Work in this sense is like toil. You're laboring. You're doing something. Strive, that word that's used for strive in verse 11, is more just talking about diligence. Even study is a translation of that sometimes. Endeavor, like you're striving, you're being diligent to do something. I think there's a difference here. It may be subtle, and you may accuse me of just splitting hairs, but I think there's a difference. One of these things focuses on working hard at doing something, and the other one focuses on working hard to hold on to something that's already been done. And I think there's a significant difference there. There's no longer any place for works as a basis for our own righteousness. But we are told to strive and be diligent to enter his rest, to believe what he says, to put our faith in Christ alone, to be right with God. Why won't our works be good enough? Why can't I earn a place in heaven with God? Well, verse 12 and 13, they tell us, they give us the reason, they answer that question. It's because God knows your heart. (laughs) That's why. You can't work enough to be right with God because he knows your heart. He sees through the facade that you put up. He sees behind the masks that we wear. He knows who we really are when nobody else is watching. He knows every part of us, every thought, every intention of our hearts, the author says in 12 and 13. He knows and he sees the good and the bad. He sees all of it. Nothing. We're, it's as if we're naked before him. We bear it all because he sees it all. Now, on one hand, that's a wonderful thing. Because God knows you and he loves you. 
He sees behind all of that fluff and he really sees you for who you are and he loves you that way. But on the other hand, depending on your status in a relationship with him, this is a terrifying thought, isn't it? If we're walking in disobedience away from God and we see this and we know he sees everything, you mean he sees every wretched thought that passes through my mind? He knows every evil deed that I've done in my entire life? Uh, yikes. That causes some fear. I, I don't want us to fall for the lie that the world tries to feed us in all of this. They try to tell you that your, your actions don't really have consequences. You can do what you want. Doesn't really matter in the end. You can say what you want. Doesn't really matter. What's really in your heart can be hidden forever. Brothers and sisters, friends, that is a lie. God sees what's in your heart. And verse 13 of Hebrews 4 just shuts that line of thinking down immediately. God knows. He sees. In fact, the one who sees everything is the one who will judge everyone. That's the reason why we go and preach the gospel, isn't it? That's really the motivation for missions right there. Because we know that God sees the hearts of all men, all mankind, and he's going to judge them. And we want Jesus Christ and his blood to cover sin and to save sinners. And so that's why we go and we preach. And so many of the Israelites witnessed the glory of God in the desert with all those things we listed earlier and they still missed it. They failed to obtain his rest because they weren't really united by faith to the one who could really provide it. They didn't listen and they were disobedient. And so many people today still miss it for the very same reasons. Because they don't want to listen. If you still have your finger in Psalm 95, just kind of glance back at 94. Look back at verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Brothers and sisters, we can't be fooled into thinking that God doesn't see and God doesn't hear. He gave you your ears. Of course, he can hear. He created the eye. Of course, he sees. Don't be fooled into thinking that your actions don't have consequences because they do. And when we refuse and we reject the truth about who God is, this is what happens. We walk in disobedience and we miss his rest and we don't obtain salvation. The American dream and most really our own stubborn hearts will constantly tell us to just do it yourself. Work hard and you can make it happen. Don't take no for an answer. Take control of your own destiny and do it. I'm not trying to say we should be irresponsible and that all sounds pretty well okay. But in regards to eternity, it flies in the face of what the Bible says. It's not how it works. You can't just make it happen 
You can't speak it into existence enough. You can't take control of your own destiny because it's already in the hands of God who does a better job of it than we ever could. The hope for us, the hope for our country is not going to be legislating morality, although we shouldn't just abandon that altogether. But I think really the hope is going to be that we need as a people to see that we need to be rescued. We can't do it on our own. We can't work hard enough to please God, to to turn this boat around. It has to be the rescue of God himself. And so that's what we pray for. That's what we hope for. As you can imagine, only the Spirit of God can do that in a person's heart, in a nation's heart. He still does it today. Now, Psalm 95, I said, it shows us both sides of the same coin. So one side is that who God is causes the response of worship from his people and gives the promise of ultimate rest. That's one side of the coin. When we see God for God for who he is, that's one response. But the other response, for those who don't believe and who disobey, who God is will cause a very different reaction and removes any promise of rest. The outcome is so different. The word of God we just read is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it goes straight through all the walls that we put up. Straight to the heart. And whether it's an intentional choice or just kind of being indifferent. If your plan in life is just to live how you want, ignore the law of God and his word, and expect God to just forgive you in the end because he's nice, you're going to be sadly mistaken. Now, don't get me wrong. God is nice, but not in the sense that I think we mean it sometimes. He's nice in the sense that he's just. No, justice works in a particular way. And this isn't a sermon about justice, but rest works in a particular way. It's not like our vacations. God works in a particular way. He creates, he calls, he judges. His word, this, the Bible that you're holding, it opens us up. And reveals where we're trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in Jesus. It shines light into the dark corners of our own hearts. And it cuts stuff out that we try to hide in there. It's like a double-edged scalpel that very specifically removes the tumors of sin from our heart and our lives. Removes disbelief. And we think, man, if, if only Israel would have listened. And I think, if only America would listen. If only the world would listen. But you can't answer for the Israelites. I can't answer for all of America or all of the world. I can only answer for myself, and you can too. So the question that we really should ask is, will I listen? Am I listening? Or am I plugging up my ears in disbelief? Flip back to Hebrews 4, if you're not already there, and let's wrap this up with verses 14 and 15 and 16, because I think these are still connected. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Starts in verse 14 by saying, since then we have this. If we've entered into the rest of God of salvation, not in our own works, we've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior and we hold fast to the truth, this truth that Jesus is our great high priest. That's true. Not just somebody who appeals to God on our behalf, like this intercessor, although that is part of what he does for his people. That's a wonderful, glorious thing. It's not just that. This high priest who does that sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows every area that you're being tempted in, everything you're being tempted to look at and enter into and say and think. He's been tempted in those things, and yet he was without sin. And so we can go to him with our temptations and our struggles If your faith is in Him alone, no matter what it is that you're going through, Jesus, He gets it. He sympathizes with you and then He stands with you even when you're weak because He is strong. And so for that reason, verse 16 says that we should draw near to the throne of grace confidently that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you know what that sounds like to me? rest. That sounds like God's rest for his people to draw near, to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. sounds like God's rest to me. And so that's why I'm convinced that Psalm 95, that's all about God's rest. Praise and rest for everyone who's united with Christ and has ceased from their own, own works who God is will cause praise and worship to just spill out of their mouths and spill over into their lives. So the question I want to ask you, Christian, today, if you call yourself a believer, is your life marked by those things? Is your life marked by a restful reliance on God? Or are you still trying to work to earn His favor? Because you can't work for that and still rest in God at the same time. You, you will give up one or the other. I pray you give up your own work today. If he is, in fact, the things that the beginning of Psalm 95 described, those five things, that he is our rock, king, maker, shepherd, and judge. If he really are, is those things in your life, i got to believe that that's going to show. Like that's going to be evident to people. Maybe not consistent, maybe not like 100% of the time, but consistently it will. You will produce good fruit because you are a good tree made by a good God. And my challenge for those who may be listening who have not believed, who currently do not believe, who have not entered into his rest, I, I really just, I don't have any better words to say than David has already said. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. 
And I can assure you, you heard God's voice today because you heard his word. It's living and active, lays us bare. It does everything that God accomplishes. You've heard the voice of God today. Don't harden your heart. Instead, cease from your own rest. Recognize your inability to work hard enough to earn God's favor. You can never do enough good to cancel out all of the bad that you do. That is a mathematical impossibility. And God knows it. Praise God he knows it. That's not his solution for entrance into heaven, for being in a relationship with him. It's not your good stuff outweighing your bad stuff. It's abandoning everything and chasing after Jesus Christ. The rest of God is only found in a relationship with his son, with Jesus Christ. And that's our hope and our prayer as a church and as Christians in our families, in our community, in America, in the world, that people would enter into God's rest and cease from their own work. We have to do it first, brothers and sisters. Let's be people who are so caught up and excited about what God is doing and who God is that worship and praise just spills out. It overflows. We can't even help it. May that be how our church and how we are described. Let's pray. Lord, our nation needs you. People need you. Not just America, Lord, people of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue, they need you because you are their only hope. And we get confused in this country because we have affluence to some degree. We get confused and think that that's how we're going to be happy. And it's never the solution. Wealth and prosperity is never happiness. It never really truly gets us happy. Lord, only abandoning those things and putting our faith in Jesus really brings true happiness and joy. It really brings ultimate rest. And so Lord, I pray for rest for my brothers and sisters, more than just a physical rest of taking a nap or getting a good night's sleep, Lord. Those are needed, but Lord, more than that, I pray in their souls that they would find your rest. And Lord, that you would remove God, help our unbelief so that we're not marked by disobedience like the Israelites who saw your wonderful works and yet still grumbled and disobeyed and doubted. Lord, may we instead put our faith in you and trust in Jesus, our only hope. In Christ's name I pray, amen.